Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly. I'm Sean Donnan, the FT's World News Editor, and I'm standing in for Gideon Ruckman this week. Italy has been firmly in the spotlight with national elections ending in chaos. The electorate could not have sent a clearer message. They're tired of austerity. They're tired of the political elite. A quarter of the electorate has voted for a former comedian. Another quarter has voted for a former prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, who's facing corruption charges. The center-left narrowly squeaked out a win in the lower house, thanks to Pierluigi Bersani, their leader. And trailing badly in fourth place was Mario Monti, the technocratic prime minister who had been appointed to rescue the place 15 months ago. But if one thing is certain, it's going to take weeks for this all to resolve itself and instability looks set to reign for the foreseeable future. Joining me to discuss this unfolding drama is Guy Dinmore, our Rome correspondent from Brussels, our bureau chief Peter Spiegel, and here in London, Ferdinando Giuliano, a leader writer for the FT who we dispatched to his home country to travel through the election campaign. Guy, let's start with you. Where do we go from here? Well, the situation is incredibly confused. Uh, we have a parliament broadly split three ways, at least in the upper house. The centre-left has a majority in the lower house, not in the Senate, and they have made their sort of opening moves in an attempt to cobble together some kind of coalition that could sustain a government. But this has effectively already been rejected by the centre-right of Silvio Berlusconi. And it could be some weeks before we, we find a way out of this, which could either be a grand coalition between left and right, a minority government supported issue by issue. Even in the Constitution, there is a sort of nuclear option where Mario Monti's technocrat government could actually extend its mandate and take Italy through to a period of new elections, and the earliest we could hold them would be in June. So we've got plenty of uncertainty ahead. Ferdinando, one of the great stories of this election has been the rise of Beppe Grillo, the comedian at the head of this five-star movement. What do we know about them, and what do we know about their experience in governing? When I was traveling around Italy a couple of weeks ago, that was the thing which struck me the most, was how broad the support of Beppe Grillo was. Initially, Beppe Grillo's movement was in a sense tied to young people who were disaffected with traditional political parties and would vote for someone who was using the internet a lot. But in fact, his support among, for example, artisans in northeast Veneto, the rich industrial heartland of the city, was huge. So it's a very broad-based support, which is really the interesting story of this election. Where do we go from now? Well, we don't know, because their experiences in government are few. There is one in Parma where they rule on their own. And there we know that they have had to face reality. For example, Parma has a huge debt which needs to be refinanced and eventually paid back. And that's scaled down a lot what they intended to do in their electoral program. So they've been much more realist there. The most relevant experience here, I think, is what's happening in Sicily, where the regional assembly is led by a man who was elected on a center-left ticket, Crocetta, and where the five-star movement offers support on an issue-by-issue base. Now, it's still too early to say exactly whether this will work over the long run. The government there hasn't been in place for long enough to tell. But it seems like actually when they are in government, this five-star movement 
can be actually more pragmatic than many people assume. So I'm not saying this can be replicated at the national level because clearly the questions there are much bigger and the intersection between what Italy can do and what the Eurozone will let it do are very different. But it's something I think commentators should look at very, very carefully. Now, Guy, we clearly saw Bersani this week start off by saying we came first, although we didn't win, and also reaching out to the Five Star Movement. Is your sense that they see the Five Star Movement as a natural ally, as a real potential ally, or is it just something that they're going to tolerate and live with? For sure, not a natural ally. It's just that the situation forces them to try and reach out to, to the Five Star Movement. You know, ideological terms, there are those on the far left of the Democratic Party who do identify themselves more closely, for sure, with the Five Star Movement than, than Silvio Berlusconi's party. I can't imagine that the Five Star Movement would enter a formal coalition with the centre-left. It's not in their interest at all to be part of a government with ministerial posts. It's their interest to stay outside a government, to keep pushing, to keep attacking, and eventually prepare themselves for the next elections where they think they can win outright. What is really developing today, I think, is that the centre-right is reacting very harshly and with great hostility to Bersani's opening to the Five Star Movement and are trying to hit back. And I think Berlusconi's party will will try very much to be part of a future government in some kind of coalition with the centre-left. But this would cause enormous rifts within the Democratic Party. So it's, it's very hard to see how that would work as well. And that has been one of the other amazing stories of this election. 14, 15 months ago, Silvio Berlusconi looked finished. He resigned in shame almost, and now he's back. Is he going to have a chance at forming a government? I don't think he can really. For sure, he fought an amazing comeback. I mean, he had been written off for dead virtually. But if you take a cold look at the figures, uh, his party lost about 40% of its support since the last elections five years ago. It's true, they came very close to taking the lower house from the centre-left. It came down to just over 100,000 votes in the end. But that was because the centre-left was severely weakened by a hemorrhaging of its support towards the Five Star Movement. Berlusconi's rescued them from the dead, but if you do look at the numbers, they have suffered huge losses. But nonetheless, he he does have a a sizable number of seats in the lower house and in the Senate. He will be a very important figure. For sure, they will ask for important institutional posts, perhaps the Speaker of the Senate. There will be a big battle over who is going to be the next head of state because Giorgio Napolitano, his seven-year term is finishing in May and a new president must be elected, which is another issue that is is crucial to future developments, especially as we have to wait for the new president who would have the powers to dissolve the new parliament if we were to go towards elections. So there are lots of things up in the air. I think Berlusconi obviously will be very, very important, but for the moment I cannot imagine him being able to form a government. Peter, the markets clearly reacted negatively to this on both Monday and Tuesday. Saw big falls in the U.S., Asian, and European markets, big hit on Italian bank stocks. There was a moment there where it felt like the Eurozone crisis was back after we thought it had been uh, sort of parked and uh, quasi-solved. How did it look from Brussels? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, people who follow it very closely never really believed that the Eurozone crisis had ever gone away. I mean, what the Italian election exposes is two weaknesses that I think many observers had witnessed for several months. I mean, one is this is a, this is a union of 17 individual countries that requires consensus. So any time you would get one of these governments to have some sort of political crisis or, or see a, an anti-EU, anti-Euro populist party come into power – 
it threatened the whole project. I mean, we saw it in Greece, obviously, with the near election of Alex Tsipras, the far-left leader in last year's Greek elections. But even in the north, I mean, we saw in the Finnish election, the true Finns populist party became within a, a breath of becoming you know, the largest party in Finland, which potentially could have wrecked the whole thing. And the same thing in the Netherlands, uh, the Dutch elections last year were populist for a while. We were looking that they were going to take about a third of the parliament. So there was always a political risk to this whole crisis-fighting strategy, which requires consensus. The more troubling thing, I think, for a lot of the markets, though, is the policy that really stopped the Eurozone crisis, or at least you know, put it in hibernation since last summer, was the ECB's policy announced by Mario Draghi that it was ready to do what it takes to basically buy any and all Eurozone sovereign debt as a backstop to basically implosion. And I think most investors saw that policy as similar to what the U.S. Fed or the Bank of England do, which is pull the trigger and start buying bonds almost at a, at a whim in order to shore up the fiscal space, to shore up the, the economy. The problem is, what people are now waking up to is that ECB tool is not like the Fed. It can't automatically pull the trigger. It needs a government, A, to request it, but then the rest of the Eurozone has to approve it. It's a very political process. They need to have conditions attached to any bond buying program. Do you really think that the Bundestag, the German parliament, is at this point going to support an Italian request for assistance by the ECB? No. I mean, it's been, it's been an incredibly tendentious election where Berlusconi has been openly mocking the Germans. You know, and really, you know, you've seen the front page of Bild Zeitung, the, the big German daily today, talking about the two clowns who are going to destroy our euro in Italy. So, so what people are waking up to, I think, particularly yesterday when, when it became apparent that Bersani did not have, have a, a majority, is that politics is still in charge. Central bankers are not in charge in the Eurozone. It's still the politicians. And the politicians have a very, very bad track record over the last two or three years of getting things right. And I think that's the nervousness that seeped back into the Eurozone crisis. Fernando? Yes, I think that's the big, big problem which Europe faces at the moment. We should remember that in Italy, it's not just a matter of them being clowns, Berlusconi and Grillo, but they've openly run on a ticket which seems completely incompatible with the austerity which had been put in place by Monti and to some extent embraced by Bersani and the centre-left as well. Now, that's the big sticking point. If, if Bersani is thinking of, of forming a coalition with Grillo, what's their economic policy going to look like? I mean, it's, it's just the two seem completely incompatible at the moment. Many people talk of Grillo as a, an anti-euro movement. That's not right. What he's done in his, in his manifesto was to say we would want to have a referendum on the euro, but he's never said he would, he would be against the euro or uh, he would urge his supporters to vote against it. Also, he knows Italians tend to be backing the euro by and large. This is what opinion polls show. But it's clear that these economic policies, which include, for example, uh, giving 1,000 euro citizenship wage to anyone, whether or not he's, he's employed or not, are very hard to reconcile, almost impossible to reconcile with the fiscal constraints which Brussels you know, wants Italy to respect. So I think how exactly Italy will, will respond to the economic pressures coming from Brussels is a very big question mark at the moment. That guy, 14, 15 months ago, we were talking about Mario Monti as the savior of Italy. His coalition finished a distant fourth in this election. It's a real temptation to think of this as a vote against austerity and a vote against the work that he's done. Where does this leave Mario Monti? Well, that's very interesting. In all the comments in the papers about possible permutations of future governments, Mario Monti's name is almost completely absent. It's, it's like he doesn't exist. It's like that period of 15 months was... Not exactly a nightmare, let's not exaggerate, but it's a period that Italians want to put behind them. As Peter says, you know, democracy and governments 
are very important. And democracy is a messy business. The Italians have demonstrated quite forcefully between the anti-austerity policies of Berlusconi and Beppe Grillo that they just are not going to accept the kind of policies that have been agreed between the technocrats of Mario Monti and Brussels, that, that they do want change. It does cast a huge question mark over the future of the fiscal compact and growth policies and all the rest. And in that sense, I, I'm tempted to think that Mario Monti has very little role to play in, in Italian politics in future. Perhaps in an ideal world, he would still be given a position in government to somehow restore the credibility of the markets in Italy. But I think we've gone well beyond that. He's now so discredited. I mean, his own list took about 8% of the vote that I think it will be very difficult for him to have a voice here. Perhaps he'll find a, another job back in Brussels. Perhaps he'll go back to his position at Bocconi University. I really don't know. Now, Peter, how is Brussels going to deal with this problem? You know, the idea that all of the policies they've been advocating through the crisis have basically been rejected in this in this election. Do they have a plan B, plan C? Well, let me be slightly contrarian on this point. I think we forget, sometimes we have short memories. It was only about a few months ago where a very large Eurozone country had an election in which they elected a leader who was an avowedly anti-austerity candidate who vowed to reverse all these dictates from Brussels, and his name was Francois Hollande. And he woke up very quickly and realized he can't do that. That actually the way the Eurozone has been structured now, like it or not, you do not have control of your domestic fiscal policies anymore. And country by country, it started with Greece, and it started with these small countries like Ireland and Portugal, but is now coming to Spain, to France, and to Italy. Even the big countries no longer have control of their own fiscal policies. So this idea that somehow the 20-something percent that Beppe Grillo got and the, the 30 percent that Silvio Berlusconi got is somehow going to change policies out of Brussels, I think, frankly, is a bit naive. If Francois Hollande couldn't do it, I don't think anything election in Italy is going to do it. But this gets to the larger issue of, to be honest with you, in, in my view, the larger crisis, the political crisis of the Eurozone, is that policies have been put into place Treaties have been adopted without consulting voters on whether they think this is a good idea. They are now hamstrung. The Italian government and the French government are now hamstrung that they are forced to implement austerity or at least hit budget targets that are set in Brussels, whether they like it or not. And, and, they, and they are legally bound to do that. And this has been a huge debate now in France where they clearly are going to miss their budget target at the end of the year. Can Brussels really turn around and tell an elected French government, I'm sorry, you no longer can implement the fiscal policies you want. You have to do once we dictate. And that's what's happening already. There's a debate going on right now alongside this Italian debate. So I guess my belief is that although clearly voters have spoken here, it's almost too late. The train has left the station. We have adopted a treaty in which fiscal austerity basically is the policy for all Eurozone countries. Now, what happens after that? Do we get real political instability that we've seen in Greece or in some respects Spain? That's, I think, the real nervousness you get in a lot of the corridors here in Brussels is that we have set ourselves a policy that doesn't necessarily have popular support. Those two things can come in real conflict as we move forward. And on that happy note, I think we'll wrap it up for today. Thank you very much to Ferdinando Giuliano here in the studio in London, down the line from Rome, Guy Dinmore, and on the phone from Brussels, Peter Spiegel. I'm Sean Donnan. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.